In the weeks leading up to Easter, I'd like us to spend some time looking at the life of Jesus, which we're probably going to do from the Gospel of Matthew. I haven't quite figured out everything yet. Uh, we're certainly not going to get all the way through the Gospel before Easter. But I wanted to try and look at the person and the work of Jesus from two perspectives. Uh, Paul tells us in the book of Colossians that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And that God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And so as we look at Jesus and each incident in his life, we need to be asking, what does this teach me about the character and the nature of God? And I've pinched that from Philip Parsons and their Bible study. They're asking those questions from the Gospel of Mark at the moment. But there's a second reason for spending time looking at Jesus too. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Many of our problems in life come as a result of trying to find fulfillment and joy in things that are not God. And the reason that we do that is because we fail to see the beauty of God. Many of us struggle with one kind of addiction or another. The Bible refers to those things as idols. Perhaps it's sex or money or alcohol or our cell phone. And the way to get rid of those idols is not actually by focusing on the idol itself and clenching our fists and trying to fight it and overcome it with a whole lot of rules and self-control techniques. There is a place for some of that. But the best way to overcome our addictions to things that are not God is to be captured by this greater vision. A vision of how lovely and strong and powerful and present and intelligent and wise and good and gracious and glorious and beautiful God is. And where is it that we see the loveliness and strength and power and presence and intelligence and wisdom and goodness and graciousness and glory and beauty of God? It is, as Paul says, in the face of Christ. So we're not just looking at the life of Jesus because it's a good thing to do before Easter or because it's an interesting intellectual exercise. We do so because we see the beauty of God in the face of our Lord Jesus and we want to be captured by this better vision. So if you've got your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 3. Kind of follows on from the Christmas story. It's the next episode that Matthew gives us in Jesus' life. And we're going to read verses 1 through 17. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. 
And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. This is God's Word. There's so much to look at here, and there are various different ways in which we could look at this, but what I'd like to do is spend the majority of our time just describing something of this picture that Matthew gives us here, filling in some of the background and highlighting some of the features, a little bit like a curator at an art museum might do with a great painting. Because when we look carefully at this picture, it is a deeply compelling picture indeed. And then once we've done that, at the end, I'll make one quick application. Matthew tells us that John the Baptist suddenly appears in the desert of Judea, proclaiming or heralding the word of God. And we're told here that crowds went out to him from Jerusalem and all the Judea and the surrounding region. And that's understandable because for 400 years, the people of God had not heard God speaking. No prophet had stood up to speak on God's behalf. Uh, the prophet Malachi uh, was the last of the great prophets, and his ministry had ended 400 years previously. And interestingly, do you know what the last word of the Old Testament is? <laughs> it's the word curse. I'll come back to that in a moment. But from that final word of Malachi onwards, for 400 years there had been no message from God until John exploded like a firework in the desert. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now, this idea of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God was not actually anything new. The Jewish people believed that as the creator, God is in sovereign control of the world and everything in it. I think, for example, of Psalm 97. The Lord reigns. Let the earth be glad. Let the distant shores rejoice. Or Psalm 145. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures through all generations. But the Old Testament also looked forward to a day, the day, the day of the Lord, when everyone would acknowledge God's reign and rule, where God himself would come to earth and eliminate all evil and suffering and set up his eternal kingdom. And there were various prophecies about this day of the Lord and what it would be like. 
One of the things that we're told is that before God's coming, there would be a forerunner, a prophet, a prophet like the prophet Elijah, who would herald the coming of God. So in verse 3, Matthew refers to the prophet Isaiah, who speaks about a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. I mentioned the prophet Malachi a moment ago, and Malachi goes into a bit more detail about this herald that would appear. He says, see, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. And so when John starts preaching out in the desert, people sat up and listened and took note, especially when they looked at John's appearance. I'm sure you noticed it, uh, the description that Matthew gives of John in verse 4. He says, John's clothes were made of camel's hair and he had a leather belt around his waist. Now, the Bible very rarely gives a person's description or a description of their appearance. But this is a description that people would have remembered from Scripture. In 2 Kings chapter 1, the prophet Elijah is described in this way, a man with a garment of hair and with a leather belt around his waist. And so there's this tremendous excitement out in the desert. Is this Elijah, the prophet? Is this the herald? Because if it is, then people know what happens next. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. So look at the chronology of God's timetable. First comes the prophet, and next, immediately, comes God himself. That's pretty important to bear in mind when it comes to the person of Jesus. First the messenger, then the coming of God. In a very real sense, when Jesus appears, God appears. But what does the day of the Lord look like? How does Jesus appear to the world on the first day of his public ministry? The prophet Malachi paints a very fiery picture of what God's appearing would look like. He says, but who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire. Which is exactly the kind of thing that John himself expected, if you look at verses 10 and 12. The axe is already at the root of the tree. Every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So let's ask again, what does the day of the Lord look like? How does Jesus appear to the world on the first day of his public ministry? Matthew tells us that he joins the queue of sinners who are waiting to be baptized by John. What is he doing? He's bearing my shame. This is a tremendous thought. Most of us know something about shame. Shame is that awful feeling of embarrassment and humiliation that comes from knowing that we've done wrong. Sometimes that's compounded by the fact that everyone knows that we have done wrong. 
and sometimes we bear secret shame all on our own. But the shame of having watched pornography, of being divorced, of having had an affair, of having had an abortion, of being addicted to a substance. And if you're struggling with shame this morning, Matthew wants us to know that Jesus has borne our shame. Not just that he bears our sin, as amazing as that is, but that he bears our shame as well. John White was a Christian doctor and writer, and he described an incident in his own life, which I think captures a bit of what is happening here. He wrote, as a medical student, I once missed a practical class on sexually transmitted diseases. And because of this, I had to go to the venereal diseases clinic alone one night at a time when students did not usually attend to meet one of the professors. As I entered the building, a male nurse I did not know met me. A line of men were waiting for treatment. I want to see the doctor, I said. That's what everybody wants, stand in the line, he replied. But you don't understand, I'm a medical student, I protested. Makes no difference, you got it the same way everybody else did, stand in the line, the male nurse replied. In the end, I managed to explain to him why I was there, but I can still feel the sense of shame that made me balk at standing in line with men who had venereal disease. And John White goes on to say, yet Jesus shunned shame as he waited to be baptized. And the moral gulf that separated him from us was far greater than that separating me from the men at the clinic. Moreover, my dislike of venereal disease was as nothing compared with Jesus' utter abhorrence of sin. But he crossed the gulf, joined our ranks, embraced us, and still remained pure. He identified with those he came to save. He became like us. John the Baptist immediately recognizes the utter inappropriateness of this. He tries to deter Jesus, to put him off. Verse 14, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? What's John saying? You're the one who should be baptizing me. I need to be where you are, and you need to be where I am. This is the wrong way around. Jesus, you are stood in my place, because Jesus is our substitute. What was the result of Jesus identifying with us in this way, bearing our shame, undergoing a baptism of repentance even though he was sinless? Matthew tells us in verse 16, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Here you have this wonderful Trinitarian picture, the voice of God the Father declaring the identity of God the Son coming up out of the water with God the Holy Spirit descending on him. Not that Jesus had not had the Holy Spirit up to this point. Uh, the Holy Spirit came upon Mary at Jesus' conception and from birth he was Emmanuel, God with us. So there was never a time when he didn't have the Spirit. But this visible appearance of the Holy Spirit is a sign to Jesus and to the crowd of his special anointing and commissioning. 
I remember one writer pointing out that God the Father declares his love for his son before he's done anything at all, before he's healed the sick or raised the dead or preached a sermon. But that's not completely accurate, is it? Jesus has done something. He has fulfilled all righteousness. He's obeyed the Father's will by not coming to reign through power and might and force, but by humility and weakness and suffering and shame. And it's that obedience that results in God's pleasure in him and a declaration of Jesus' unique identity. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. If you know your Bibles well, you'll know that God is quoting himself at this point. Uh, The first part, this is my son whom I love, comes from Psalm 2, which speaks about the Messiah as this amazing king. But the second part, with him I am well pleased, comes from Isaiah 42, where God speaks about his suffering servant who will redeem the world, but only by sacrificing himself. And God's putting those two passages of Scripture together reaffirms what we've already seen, that Jesus is the King who comes to reign, not through splendor and force and power, but by substituting himself for us in weakness, in suffering, and eventually in death. Which does raise an important question. If the coming of Jesus was so different to what the Old Testament expected, then did the Old Testament writers get it wrong? Were Joel and Malachi mistaken? Where is the fire? Which is a question that John the Baptist himself asks a couple of chapters later. John is sat in jail because he preached against Herod Antipas, telling him that it was unlawful for him to seduce his brother's wife away from him and to marry her. And John is in prison, he's feeling low, he hears reports about all that Jesus is teaching and doing, but his burning question is, where's the fire? He sends messengers to Jesus to ask him, are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? I've been telling people that you're going to come and put everything right. You're going to burn up evil and injustice, and it hasn't happened. I'm sat here in jail. This is a total miscarriage of justice. Where's the fire? And the answer to John's question and the answer to our question is right here in this passage that we're looking at. Because in Jesus' baptism, we've seen a God who substitutes himself for us. But Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River was just a foretaste of a much greater baptism that Jesus would undergo. Jesus referred to this a couple of times uh, with his disciples. In Mark chapter 10, when James and John ask if they can be seated at Jesus' right and left, Jesus says to them, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink? or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with, speaking future. More significantly, in Luke 4, Jesus says to his disciples, I've come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled, but I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is completed. And so Jesus, too, when he was on earth, looked forward to the day 
when he would bring fire on the earth and destroy all that is wicked and evil and bring in God's eternal kingdom. Jesus experienced firsthand how broken this world is and how twisted by evil it is, and, and it deeply distressed him. The problem is, though, that if Jesus had immediately brought God's fire on the earth, there would be nothing left. As Malachi asked, who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire. And so what happens? Jesus delays bringing fire on the earth until he has gone through another fire. Jesus undergoes another baptism, that on the cross he goes through the fire of God so that you and I don't have to. If you drive around parts of the Western Cape, even this afternoon, around some of our mountains, you will see strips of land that have been burnt. They're fire breaks. Once a controlled fire has gone through that land, then no other fire can touch it. And in a similar way, Jesus stands next to us and takes the fire of God's wrath upon himself on the cross in my place so that on that final day, I need not face God's kingdom as fire and wrath, but as justice and peace and joy. Part of which I experience right now, men and women whose lives are changed and who live in communities that promote justice and peace. But the glimpses of that kingdom that we see now in part, the kingdom that has come, will be perfected and glorified at the final coming of the king in ways that we can barely imagine. All of that and so much more is there in the picture of Jesus that Matthew gives us here in chapter 3. In my life I've had the privilege of visiting a couple of different art galleries and seeing some remarkable paintings. And the very best artworks elicit a response from us. There are paintings that disturb us, paintings that make us laugh, paintings that bring us joy, paintings that produce a sense of wonder and delight. What is our response to Matthew's picture today? Matthew isn't writing instructions for us, things for us to do. No, the picture is already there for us. We don't have to paint it, but we are invited to respond. Matthew describes four possible responses in these verses, and we don't have time to go into them all in detail. Let me just mention them. Firstly, we could admire this picture from a distance. That's what the religious leaders did. In verse 7, Matthew describes the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where John was baptizing. But they don't join the queue. They don't get into the water. They stand back and look at a distance. If some of the common people want to draw close to God, so much the better. But they don't want to get involved. And it's possible, too, for us to admire this picture from a distance, to admire Jesus' life, to admire his teaching, even to admire his sacrifice without making it our own. Or, secondly, we could rely on our own righteousness, on our own goodness. Again, something the Pharisees and the Sadducees did. Verse 9, thinking, we have Abraham as our father. They're relying on their religious heritage, their religious pedigree. Much as someone today might say, I'm religious. My grandfather was even a lay preacher. 
And many people think to themselves, I'm basically a good person. I pay my taxes, most of them. I donate to charity. I obey the Ten Commandments. I wear my seatbelt and I floss regularly. But look again at this picture of the Son of God, God himself substituting himself for us, bearing our sin, bearing our shame, naked on the cross, and realize that in comparison to that, as the prophet Isaiah says, our very best deeds are like a pile of manure. It would be like someone giving you a 69 million rand mansion in Clifton. And you saying to the person, well, actually, I've, I've got about 25 rand here. C can I give it to you as a kind of a contribution to your generous gift so we can make it a joint effort? It, it's laughable. Thirdly, we could respond by saying the right things, but not having a life that's changed in any dramatic way. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, too, said they were children of Abraham, part of God's chosen people. But in verse 8, John challenges them and says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Have a life that is changed. And in the same way, saying that I'm a Christ follower or saying the right things in church is useless unless this picture has altered my life. Which leads to our only other possible response, the response of John the Baptist to Jesus. There's that lo lovely phrase in verse 15 where we read, then John consented. What does it mean to consent? Simply means to say yes to Jesus and to keep on daily saying yes to him as our creator, our redeemer, our substitute, our Lord, our friend. To borrow some other words from John that are recorded for us in John's Gospel, he must become greater and I must become less. When we truly see the picture of Jesus that Matthew paints for us, it leads us to say, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all.